0: Sunday is really a God-given opportunity for His saints, the saints of God, to rejoice in the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Every Sunday is, is that opportunity. And so in a way, there's nothing different about today. We, we just do what we do. We, we are who we are. Nothing has changed. Jesus Christ is still risen. Jesus Christ is still Lord. But today is the day when we remember that Jesus historically rose from the, from the dead. It's the day when we remember that Jesus Christ historically rose from the grave. It's a reminder to us, and I want to, to press this on your heart this morning. It is a reminder to us that, that we're not talking about some abstract, mythical story. That, that, that the, the resurrection of Christ is not just some fable, some parable, some myth. But rather, there was actually a day in history when one called Jesus the Christ was raised from the dead. And friends, listen to me today. It is that truth that the entirety of the Christian faith rests. It is on that truth that the entirety of the Christian faith rests. It is on that truth that our hope rests. If it were not for that reality that there was a literal day when a man named Jesus the Christ who worked miracles and lived a perfectly sinless life, who was crucified, dead and buried, and rose again. If it were not for that, there would be no hope. I suppose the text that most Bible preachers will be referring to today would be that text in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and, and that's where I want to begin this morning. I, I know that the bulletin says Romans 4, and we're going to get there, but I need to get a bit of a running start. And so we're going to start in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. A couple things about this letter, just just obviously he's, he's getting ready, there's only another chapter to go here or so, but he's getting ready to close out the letter, And as with many of Paul's letters, the Apostle Paul is bringing this letter to a close. And as he does, he is actually confronting a particularly bad false teaching that had come to infect and influence the Corinthian church. Now, what I found is interesting is we just finished studying through the Thessalonian epistles. And in the Thessalonian epistles, we find a very similar false teaching that had infected and influenced the Thessalonians. And I think it's the same teaching that the Corinthians were combating here. What do I mean? There were those in the church, there were those in the church who were not convinced that there would be a resurrection from the dead. There were those in the church who were not convinced that the dead will rise again. As I said, this is probably the same kind of problem that infected and influenced the Thessalonian churches. And we spent quite a bit of time looking at that issue. It was what happened in Thessalonica, remember, was sort of a messed up kind of eschatology. Eschatology, the, the study of end times. They had, they had a messed up eschatology. Things were not right in their minds. Things were not right with their theology. And that was evidence. I think it's the same thing that was going on here in Corinth. Because the way that Paul brings this chapter to a close, what does he do? He ends up talking about the, the, the end times. He ends up talking about the end things, the last things. In this chapter, Paul, you you know what he wants to do when he begins here in chapter 15, verse 1. All that he wants to do is he wants to begin by reminding them of the gospel. I find it's interesting. Paul has the same purpose here in Corinth as he had in Rome. When he wrote the letter to the Romans, chapter 15 says, I've spoken to you boldly in order to remind you of the gospel. That's what Paul wants to do here In Romans 15. That's why we just sang that little chorus, chorus, the gospel song. Because I want our hearts to be thinking about the simple truths, our minds to be reflecting on the simple truths of the gospel. Paul's reminding them of the gospel that he brought to them. And he's reminding them of the gospel that they believe. So this morning, I want you to think about, maybe think back to the day when you first heard the gospel. Someone brought you the gospel and you began to believe The gospel, what is it that you believed? And what he wants to do is he wants to encourage them not to stray, not to wander away from the gospel, because if they wandered from that truth, you know what he says? You believed in vain. Now today we hear people talking about the word deconstruction. You've heard lots of people talk about that, right? People are deconstructing everywhere. And I found that, you know, it, it, it depends who you're talking to and the context in which you're talking in order to how you define that term deconstruction. But let me just say basically that it's referring to those who are no longer holding to the faith that was once delivered for the saints. They're no longer holding to the faith that they originally. Believed, and that's what was happening in Corinth. It was much more than just a a doubt. And what Paul does here is he revisits at the beginning of this chapter, he revisits, and I know that chapter 15 is a long one. I'm not going to go all the way through it, we'll be done by next Easter. But Paul begins here by giving the basic tenets of the gospel. And he holds up those basic tenets, just the basic truths, holds up those basic truths as to what must be believed. You've got to hold on to this. You've got to hold on to this. But as he does that, he encounters a problem. The problem of this false teaching. They were some who were really struggling to believe that there is a future. Resurrection of the dead. Or let me say it this way. They were really struggling to believe that there is life after death for humanity. Now, we have to ask ourselves where this kind of teaching came from. Some say that maybe, you know, there was influence of the the Sadducees kind of thinking. For those of you who remember the Sadducees, essentially what we have here is that there was the influence of the thinking that denied the miraculous... There They denied the miraculous, and that's what he's saying, that, that he's combating those who were teaching something other, something contrary to the scripture. There were those who would say that you can't know anything for certain, and certainly that you can't be certain about death. Can't know anything for certain, and certainly you can't know anything about death, which begs the question, if you can't be certain about anything, how can you be certain that you can't be certain about no life after death? What is he talking about? Well, look at chapter 15 for a moment, verse 50. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. That's what he's talking about. That's the resurrection that he has in mind when he encounters this problem at at Corinth. He says, listen. If that's not going to happen, if you can't bank on this, there are some horrible consequences. What are they? Well, he explains them in chapter 15. Look over at verse 13. If there's no resurrection of the dead, That not even Christ has been raised. That's an unthinkable consequence. If there's no resurrection for the dead. Then Christ himself is not raised. Which is absolutely unthinkable for any Christian. In fact if a person doesn't believe that Christ has been raised. You can't be a Christian. But Christ not being raised from the dead. Is just unthinkable. Not only that in verse 14. And if Christ has not been raised. Then our preaching is in vain. That means that that there is senseless, useless, meaningless, purposeless preaching of this message. And not only that, not only senseless, useless, meaningless, and purposeless preaching, but senseless, useless, meaningless, and purposeless faith, verses 15 through 17. Your faith is in vain, he says at the end of 14. And we are even found to be misrepresenting God. It's All the the, the Bible and, and all the Bible preachers of the past and present are liars. If Christ is not raised, and if there is no resurrection, this is full of lies. You see, there's no walking sort of the middle, walking the fence when it comes to Christianity. Yeah, I believe Jesus was a nice teacher, and I believe that it's good, some good morals... No, you either believe that he is Lord and that, and that he rose again from the dead or you're not a Christian. He says in chapter, seven, in chapter 15, verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. And then I think this is really what it comes down to. You are still in your sins. If there's no resurrection, you're still in your sin. And there's no hope for you. Verse 18. If if there's no resurrection. If Christ is not raised again. This life is the end. You will never see your loved ones again. Those who have fallen asleep in verse 18. Those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They're gone. Life is essentially worthless. Meaningless hopeless Christ is not raised and if there is no resurrection then verse 19 if Christ in Christ we have hope in this life only we are of all people the most to be pitied Christians then are just a pitiful bunch if in this life only we have hope or let me say it in in the vernacular if this is your best life now you have no hope amen what I'm saying <laughs> out of the mouth of babes <laughs> I mean look at this world if, if your hope is tied to this world what you got <laughs> things I don't mean to burst your bubble but things are not getting progressively better the the world Not just to mention our country, but the world is in a state of re-degeneration, not regeneration. If that's your hope, if, if it's only this life, what do you got? But we Christians have a hope. That's what Paul's saying in 1 Corinthians 15. We have a hope that's not at all based on this present world. And that's saying something, especially when you consider all that is going on in our world today. My question, the question that I want to ask, and hopefully answer, is why? Why have Christians been known down through the ages as people, as men and women of hope? Why? The short answer is... Because Christ is risen from the dead. But I don't want to just say that. Because that can just, sometimes could just be a platitude. Just something we say, oh Christ is risen from the dead. We never think about it more than that. What I want to really ask is, how does the resurrection of Christ actually give us hope? All right? That's the question. If you're taking notes, the one question, how does the resurrection of Christ bring us hope? And in order to do to do that, I want you to turn to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 4 verses 23 through 25. Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. But the words it was counted to him, speaking of Abraham, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will, it, referring to righteousness, it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, let me tell you how we got to this point in the book of Romans. We, we studied the Romans a little while ago, but let me just refresh your mind. In the book of Romans, we learn about the righteousness of God. The, the book of Romans really zeroes in on this issue of the righteousness of God. The scripture declares that God is righteous. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means that part of His character is righteousness. That's part of His character. God's righteousness is an expression of His character. And if we were to define or describe His character in one word, we would have to use the word holy. Holy, holy, holy. So from that, I would say that righteousness is an expression of, of his holiness. In other words, it's how God exercises his holiness. When we say that God is righteous, what we mean is that listen to this, is that he only ever acts in accordance with the standard of his own character. God never violates his own character. He will never operate outside of his character. Psalm 89:14 says this: Righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. The foundation of God's rule, the foundation of God's sovereignty is His righteousness, and the psalmist would say, and His justice. So we're saying, just to be clear here, that God will only ever do, say, think, And will that which is righteous or in line with his character. Practically, your takeaway is this. God never compromises. God never fudges. He is always in perfect accord with his character. So that everything that ever comes from him is only ever pure. And that's really, really terrible news for us. <laughs> Why is that terrible news? Why does it present a problem? Because man is not naturally righteous. In fact, we're all not basically unrighteous, but we are all actually unrighteous by nature. God in his nature is actually righteous. We in our, natures, our nature are actually unrighteous, which then, now follow this, puts us in danger of being recipients of the wrath of God. There is the wrath or anger of God that must be meted out. It must be poured out on unrighteousness. And why am I making that point? Because I want you to understand, God does not compromise. God does not fudge because He is righteous. So we read in Romans chapter 1, what do we read? The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. What truth is being suppressed? The truth about the existence and power and deity of God. That's what we do when in, in ungodliness and unrighteousness. We actually suppress the very evident truth that God exists. And that he is personal. And that he is powerful. By our sinful thoughts and words and deeds. We naturally ignore what can be known about God. Because we are unrighteous. And Paul actually boils it down for us in chapter 3, if you look there for a moment, with just this quote of the Old Testament. He quotes from Psalm chapter 14 and Romans chapter 3 verse 10. And just this simple quote, one sentence, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. Now follow me here. That's to say, that there is not one single human being of normal generation who is righteous. What do I mean? If there's nobody righteous, what do I mean? Well, actually, I mean we are all corrupt. In fact, that's what the psalmist says in Psalm 14. He says unrighteousness is actually moral corruption. We do, before God, we all do abominable deeds. We do not do, say, think good we all do deeds and think thoughts and say words that before God, who is the standard, and he's a perfectly righteous standard who never compromises, he never fudges, we all do and say and think things that are corrupt, that are not good, that are unrighteous, that are ungodly, that are worthy of divine wrath. And then in case you didn't get it, he says it later in chapter three, for all have sinned. And fall short of the glory of God. Sin. You heard it before. It's, it means to miss the mark. It's like an archer. right? He pulls back and he aims the arrow at, at, at the target. And then the, 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 the arrow just falls. It doesn't even hit the target. It just misses the mark completely. We have all sinned. That's what he means. We miss the mark of God's glory. Of God's utter perfection. We don't line up with God. God is righteous. We are unrighteous. In fact... We haven't even come close. Why? Because listen. Sin is not just something we do. It's who we are. We do not become sinners because we sin. We sin because by nature we are sinners. God is righteous by nature. We are unrighteous by nature. And our sin is an overflow, an outflow, an expression of our character. We've all broken God's law. God's moral law, haven't we? I mean, just think how, how God's moral law is, is summarized. And you've heard this before. You've thought about this before. Just in the Ten Commandments alone, especially in the second, second tablet of Ten Commandments, God says you shall not lie. That's God's standard. Have you ever lied? All of us. God says, you shall not steal, taking anything that's not yours. Have you ever taken anything that's not yours? God says, you shall not covet. That's to look at something your neighbor has and not just want it for yourself, but not want him to have it because, oh, he doesn't deserve it. I deserve it. So what happened to the Apostle Paul, I believe, when he was standing by and saw at the stoning of Stephen, it was that, that moment, that covetousness raised up in his, and he recognized it in his heart, he wanted to be righteous like Stephen was and didn't want Stephen to live. God says you shall not commit adultery, it's sexual sin outside of marriage. And Jesus said, if you even look at a woman to lust after, you've committed adultery in your heart. God says you shall not murder. And Jesus said, if you even even have hatred in your heart for another person, it's like you've committed murder. We have broken God's law. All of us. And kids, even one of the Ten Commandments is to, to obey your parents. Have you perfectly obeyed your parents? No, you haven't. Coden? He's there doing this. Sorry, I didn't mean to come out publicly. We, we've all broken God's law completely. Now, I just want to remind you that I'm trying to tell you why we have great hope in this life. And you say, that's a really weird way of doing that. Because what you've told us so far is that you've told me that I am a wretched, ungodly, unrighteous law of God-breaking sinner. Exactly, that's what I've told you. The problem is that God is righteous and we are not. And all God's law does, it only ever shines the light on our sin. It only ever exposes our sin. It never shows us, well, do this and you'll, you'll be okay. Okay. It never shows us that. Why? Because we've already broken God's law. It's like trying to clean an oil spot off with an oily rag. You just just magnify the problem. When you apply more of that, you can apply all the pressure you want and it just makes it worse all the day. It doesn't matter. But, look at chapter 3, verse 21. But now, and that That word but is in opposition to what he has just said, that that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. But, and I'll put in parentheses, through something else comes the manifestation of the righteousness of God. Through the law comes the knowledge of our sin. But through something else comes the revelation or the manifestation of of the righteousness of God, which when possessed by a man or woman allows that man or woman to be accepted by God. A righteousness which when possessed will. Never receive God's condemnation, a righteousness which will never merit his wrath, a righteousness that when you have it, you will never be cast out of his presence. What he's talking about here is in chapter 3, he's talking about how it's possible for sinners, and let me quote again, for wretched, ungodly, unrighteous, law of God breaking sinners to become righteous. Which you would say your natural question is, how? Because if I have everything else in the world, but God's condemnation rests on me, I've got nothing. When I was in college, I preached a message going to hell in new sneakers. Because in those days, it seemed like everybody wanted new sneakers. Everybody wanted new sneakers, sneakers, sneakers. Like that was the only thing. Let me get new sneakers. And I said to them, What if you had everything, even new sneakers? In those days, it was like the Reebok pump. <laughs> if they still exist, they'd pump it up. What if you have that? You're still going to hell. how can I achieve a righteousness by which God will accept me? Because if I can be accepted by God, whatever else happens doesn't matter. If I can just achieve that righteousness. Well, in chapter 3, verses 21 through 31, nine times we read, Through faith, received by faith, has faith, law of faith, by faith, by faith, through faith, by this faith. In other words, what I mean to tell you is that this righteousness can't be achieved, but it has to be received. It can't be achieved, but it has to be received. How? By faith. It has to be received by faith. Now, to the points of the sermon. All that was introduction. Two points. To how the resurrection of Christ gives you hope in this world. Back to our text in Romans chapter 4, verses 23 through 25. We have hope because God put forward Jesus as a propitiating sacrifice for our sins. God put forward Jesus. God presented Jesus. God purposed Jesus. God the Father intended the Son to be a propitiating sacrifice for our sins. It will be, verse 24, counted to us who believe in him, believe in God, who raised up from the dead the Lord Jesus, who was delivered up for our trespasses. Jesus Christ was put forward as a wrath-bearing sacrifice, a sin-atoning sacrifice, which provides redemption, that is the payment for our release. He said back in chapter 3, verse 24, God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. And that's what we talked about on Friday afternoon, for those of you who are here. We talked about the necessity, this, this lightning rod issue, over which people today are saying they're deconstructing, they're pulling away from, because they can't really get the essence of this. But the lightning rod issue today is the issue of Penal substitutionary death. That Jesus was punished in our place. That what was happening on the cross. Is that the father was presenting or intending the son. As the penalty to pay the penalty for our sins. For our trespasses. For our law breaking. And that Jesus was forsaken by God so that we might be forgiven by God. He died in our place. And we can have hope because the Father put forth the Son to die on the cross, to die in our place, receiving, listen, all of the wrath and all of the anger of God that's intended for us. And you say, well, why do I have to believe that? Because it's all about grace. Verse 24, justified by the gift of His grace. Verse 16 of chapter 4, that's why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. The only way, remember I said it's not achieved, it's received. It can only be received through faith. Because it is a gift of grace. It's not something for which you can work or merit or earn. It's something that has got to be given you. This righteousness could never come from you. Be like you get pulled over this afternoon, and the police officer said, I got you going, you know, 65 in a 35. And you say, what can I do to be forgiven? And he says, just go back and and undo it. You you say, but I can't. Well, then you're guilty. The only thing that could happen is either you pay the penalty or someone else pays it. But unless the penalty is paid, there is no remission, there is no pardon, there is no release, there is no freedom. And I come up and I say, or somebody says, let me pay that for you. Oh, no, no, please, let me, let me, let me come over and rake your leaves. Nope, sorry, that, it's, not, it's not up for sale, I'm just doing this out of grace. Grace can't be achieved, it has to be received, because Jesus was delivered, delivered over. And by the way, in chapter 4, verse 25, who was delivered? That word delivered has the idea of being given over or intended for the purpose of facing suffering. For the purpose of meeting out the Father's wrath, for the purpose of the Father's wrath being poured upon the Son for our Sins, that's how you can have hope. Because Jesus, when he died on the cross, took that wrath, the wrath that's revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But you say, but how how does the resurrection, because that's what you're saying, Joe, you're saying, I want to answer the question, how the resurrection gives us hope. Oh, but look at verse 25. Who was delivered up for our trespasses, and raised for our justification. We most often associate justification with the death of Christ, and we do well when we do that. Ephesians chapter 1 making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ, he is the one who was set forth, who was presented up for our justification, but If we only speak of his death, we sell it short. When Paul says, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification, I'm I'm, I'm translating that word a little bit different than it's in the ESV. I'm translating that word for this way, because of. Who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised because of our justification? I take this to mean that Christ was raised because he had fully accomplished our justification. He had fully done what he intended to do. In other words, what I take this to mean is that the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ is the Father's stamp of approval on the work of the Son. S. Lewis Johnson said it this way, The resurrection of Christ is the Father's amen to Christ's declaration. It is finished. Jonathan Edwards said, If Christ were not risen, it would be evidence that God was not yet satisfied for our sins. The resurrection, Edward says, is God declaring His satisfaction. He thereby declared it was enough. Christ was thereby released from His work. Christ, as He was mediator, is therefore or thereby justified. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, we read this about Christ. He was manifested in the flesh, and then this, vindicated by the Spirit. The resurrection is God's vindication that Christ did exactly enough to secure redemption. That Christ did exactly enough to secure our justification. And justification is the act of God whereby He declares guilty sinners to be what? Righteous. Justification is God's way of taking away the problem of our unrighteousness. Justification is God's way of taking away the problem of our unrighteousness. And when Jesus was raised, and by the way, you always read that in the passive, he was raised. He was raised. When Jesus was raised, it is the vindication of God the Father, the vindication of the Spirit that His work was enough. But not only that. We, we, we can have hope of the resur- in the, because of the resurrection because the resurrection exclaims to us that our sins have been paid for. The resurrection is God's assurance that full and free pardon for every believer has been won. When you look at the the empty tomb, when you look at the resurrection, you are looking at this grand assurance. You have hope. Listen, all your sins dismissed, paid for. The penalty paid that's hope you have hope that there is not any going to be any condemnation that you'll never face the condemnation of God when you die if you are a believing sinner when you die you will not face the judgment of God you will not face his con- the condemnation of his wrath you'll not go to hell but there's more the resurrection of Christ provides us hope because it assures us that, our, that, that sin's penalty has been paid and that those who believe on Him would not perish but have everlasting life. But there's more. If you'll turn with me very quickly back to 1 Corinthians 15 and I'll, I'll finish up. The resurrection of Christ is, provides us hope because it exclaims to us our sins are paid for. But the resurrection of Christ provides us hope because listen, it guarantees, it guarantees our future is secure. Because Christ is raised, we too will live. First Corinthians 15:20 20 and 22 says this, in the fact if Christ Christ is has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. In other words, Jesus was a kind of first fruit, a kind of first installment of that which is to come, the guarantee of that which is to come. Our justification is what assures us of a resurrection hope. The justification that was stamped in approval by God through the resurrection of Christ from the dead. If you have no justification, you have no hope. If you have no hope, that means at the last trumpet, you will not be raised up. Death will be your greatest enemy. Death will usher you into eternal darkness. Death will have a sting to it that you cannot Avoid. But if you're justified. How can I know I'm justified? You can know you're justified if you believe what God has said. You see, that's the only test. You can know you're justified if you believe what God has said. If you trust the promise of God. If you're justified, death has no sting. In fact, John 8.51 says, you will never see death. You'll never taste it. 1 John 3.14 says, you you have passed from death to life. 1 John 5.12, if you have the Son, you have life. John 5.24, you will never be judged, but you have passed from death to life. So that death has no sting for you. But you're just looking for the resurrection. For the perishable to, put, to become imperishable. For the corruptible to put on incorruption. This morning, friends, as we close out our time together, the resurrection of Christ provides us hope because it tells us that there is sin forgiven and a future That is secure. No matter come what may. I'm going to say this. And I'm I'm not saying it flippantly. So don't take it flippantly. The resurrection of Christ. Guarantees you a secure future. That no democrat. Or no republican. Can ever mess up for you. No inept politician can ever mess that up. No crash of Wall Street can ever mess it up. No loss of job, call from the doctor, death of a loved one, family troubles can ever mess it up. The resurrection of Christ is a call to you today. I hope you hear that call. It, it is a call for you to come to salvation. If you've never come to To Christ, if you've never come to salvation, if you've never bowed before Christ and confessed that He is Lord, if you've never trusted Him to do what He said He would do for you on the cross, that He suffered, bled, died, was buried, rose again the third day, this is the resurrection says, come on, come. Come out of the highways and byways. Come out of the nooks and crannies. Have your sin forgiven forever. Have your future secure. That's what the resurrection says. Come to salvation. Why would you not come? You're going to hold on to your sin. The sin, your sin's going to give you hell. Don't go there. It's a call to salvation. It's not only a call to salvation. It is a call to service. The apostle Paul says, listen, this is why I keep, I'm in danger every hour. He says in 1530, we're in danger every hour. But I do it because Christ is raised again. I face every sacrifice. I give all service because Christ is raised again. It's a call to serve Christ fully and freely with abandon. It's a call to salvation. It's a call to service. But not only that, it's a call to sanctification. It is a great incentive for you to, what he says in chapter 15 Verse 33, do not be deceived, bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as it is right. Do not go on sinning. John says it this way, anyone who has this hope in him purifies himself as he is pure. It is a call to sanctification, to all out pursuit of holiness, to a focus, laser focus, your heart and your mind riveted on Christ's likeness, the very thing for which you've been saved. It's a call to salvation and a call to service. It is a call to sanctification and it is call, a call to steadfastness. It is a call to you. Do not deconstruct. 1 Corinthians 15 58 says this My beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. Why? Knowing. That in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Do not turn away. That's what the resurrection is calling you to. To salvation. To service. To sanctification. To steadfastness. That's why we have hope. I serve a risen Savior. And He is both risen and Savior. And so if you've never come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ today, it needs to be the day. Just where you're at in your heart right now in your seat before the Lord, you're just going to confess your sin, repent of your sin before God, understand that you've broken God's law, that you are unrighteous. Just admit that to Him. God, I'm unrighteous. I, I, I'm, I'm exactly what that guy said I am. And you know it. And then express your faith in Christ. But I see that Jesus died, that He was put forward. to to take away my unrighteousness, to give me a righteousness by which you would accept me. And I see that in the resurrection of Jesus Christ that you said it's enough. I'm trusting that. Will you do that today? Right here and right now? Maybe you say, I've been a believer and I praise the Lord, I am a believer. But you look at these things, you say, yeah, I am stirred up to faithful service. I'm stirred. Maybe, Maybe you're struggling with that with those doubts and people are bringing all kinds false teachers are coming and putting all kinds of things in your mind and you're like ah I'm, where am I listen you heard the truth of the gospel once again today 1 Corinthians 15:1 through 3 come back to that that's what he's calling us to let's pray